All right, good morning. Uh, that's very hearty, uh, especially for a rainy day. Um, we are going to be in the book of Esther. So we started the book of Esther four weeks ago. So we are, if you're good at math, we're now up to Esther 5. So uh, if you want to turn there, I'm going to read part of it, and then uh, we'll, uh, we'll jump into the sermon. So again, Esther 5, it's in the Old Testament. Uh, not a huge book, but right before the book of Job. Um, so I'm going to read uh, chapter 5, starting in verse 1. And I'm going to read until the end of verse 3. So we'll, we'll end up going through the whole chapter, but I'm going to read that and then we'll pray. So this is what it says in Esther 5. On the third day, Esther, she's a queen, put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even up to half my kingdom. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you that our lives are built upon you as a foundation, that they're not built upon our circumstances, our birth order, how we feel, that they're not built upon anything except you. Our value is sealed in you as your child. I thank you, Lord, that you do not wring your hands about what's going to happen in the future, but you're sovereignly, perfectly working your plan. So I pray right now as we look at the book of Esther that you will help us in this time, help us to see you, help us to be warned of the dangers of being a fool, of being prideful. And I pray, Jesus, that we will find our identity and our hope in you. In your name, amen. So I really like the book of Esther because uh, it reads very much like a story, and each chapter kind of leaves you on a cliffhanger. And if you're under 15 years old, um, a cliffhanger is how we used to watch TV, but now that we have Netflix, I know you only have to wait about 30 seconds, and the cliffhanger's over. But uh, in my day, back in my day when we were growing up a long time ago, uh, we had to wait. If you like to show, you had to wait till the next week to find out what happened. And we read the book of Esther with our kids earlier this year, and uh, Bible reading time doesn't always go perfect in our house, but when we were reading the book of Esther, our kids loved it, and every night they would beg, they'd be like, please, please just read the next chapter, just we want to see what happens, just read the next chapter. And uh, so it was a lot of fun to read it, because kind of each chapter leaves you with like, you get some resolution, but you also get some new tension, and so you want to know what's going to happen and how things are going to be resolved. So there's four main characters in the book of Esther. You have Esther, who's a queen, and the book's named after her. And then you have King Ahasuerus, who is the king of the Persian Empire at this time. And his his empire is really big. So it stretches from kind of modern-day Sudan all the way to Pakistan. So it's a big area of the world. And um, then you have uh, Haman, who is the king's right-hand man. Man, this is his top advisor. And then you have Mordecai, who is like a father to Esther. He's actually her uncle, but she is orphaned, and so he's really the one who raised her. 
So, and we have all four of them in this chapter. All four of them uh, play a part in this chapter in some regard. And we're going to spend today looking at three of them. We're going to look at Esther, King Ahasuerus, and Haman. And we're going to look at them in that order. So, um, the title for today's sermon is Courage, Foolishness, and Pride. And you could kind of put those banners over each one of them. Courage over Esther, foolishness over King Ahasuerus, and pride over Haman. So we're going to examine their lives. And as an outline for today, I want to start by reviewing the book, which if you've been here for the last three or four weeks, um, you may be pretty familiar, but it's helpful, I think, to get an on-ramp to make sure we know what's happening in chapter five, because again, it's one story, so we need to kind of think about it in a story format, not pull it apart uh, and just kind of isolate it. And then I want to examine the life of Esther, examine the life of King Ahasuerus, and examine the life of Haman. So... Um, so let's jump in, uh, kind of the on-ramp into chapter five. So, um, a lot's happened in these first four chapters. So the king, King Ahasuerus has had this big six month party, kind of like a carnival thing, uh, even bigger than they do it in Brazil. It's going to go for six months. And then at the end of it, he, uh, he brings in the queen and he wants to kind of make a show of her. Um, Pastor Travis did a great job in his first sermon introducing Esther to talk about how the king is uh, uh, misogynistic and there's misogyny kind of in the whole culture of his kingdom. So the queen rejects him, which he takes this as a brazen act that she would reject as one request. So he removes her as queen. Then he has this kind of terrible uh, contest, so to speak, where he picks a new queen. And then um, the new queen is Esther and her uncle is Mordecai, and Mordecai and Haman, uh, Haman hates Mordecai more than any other person in the world. And so Haman, because of his hatred for Mordecai, convinces the king to issue a decree to wipe out the whole Jewish nation, just all gone. And so now Mordecai in chapter four finds out this plan and he's just inconsolable. And then he is pleading with Esther to go to the king and, um, and basically plead on their behalf to save the Jewish people. So that's kind of all the things that have happened. And I think sometimes it can be easy because these, happened, these events happened a long time ago. Um, I mean, even at the time of Christ, and this is well before, hundreds of years before the time of Christ. So it can be easy to kind of read it as if it's a story, without thinking about the people that are in the story. And so I think this one is especially helpful to think about a recent event of World War II where Hitler wanted to wipe out the Jewish people. That's essentially what Haman wants to do. It's the same plan just thousands of years earlier. And um, Hitler and the Nazis uh, created this uh, horrible tragedy in World War II where they tried to wipe out the Jewish people and six million Jews were killed. Uh, for no reason other than the fact that they were Jewish. So it's this uh, ethnic, they were trying to, uh, to cleanse the world of this ethnicity, this people group. And a lot of countries, including the United States, have created museums and memorials to all that happened to the Jewish people in the Holocaust um, because it was so horrific that we want to remember it to hopefully prevent it from ever happening again. And so certainly there are memorials in uh, in. in um, uh, Israel, but not just in Israel, in, in Germany and other places in Europe. And then in Washington, D.C., there's a Holocaust museum that we have in the United States. 
And uh, if you've ever read much about it or seen uh, any any uh, movies or documentaries about World War II or been to any of those museums, it's it's very moving in a in a way that's disturbing. And and it kind of goes right to your core to think about the way these people were treated and how they were um, how they were targeted just because of their ethnicity. And so um, that's essentially, I, I think in thinking through that, and it, it can help us connect a little bit more emotionally to this story, that these people are on the brink of extinction, and it's all going to happen in one day. That's how the decree, in the 13th, on the 13th day of the 12th month of Adar, the Jewish people are all supposed to be killed that day. And so when Mordecai finds this out, he's, he's kind of the, the highest-ranking Jewish official in the kingdom, of course, the queen is really the highest, but nobody really knows she's Jewish yet. So he's kind of the highest known ranking official. And so he is just beside himself. It says he tears his clothes off, okay? And then he puts on sackcloth, which is this really uncomfortable kind of burlap bag. And he walks through the streets and he makes such a scene. He's just walking and he's wailing. It says in verse, um, if you look in the uh, the beginning of chapter 4 in verse Uh, one it says and he went out into the midst of the city and he cried with a loud bitter cry so he's walking and he's like why 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 is this happening and he and it's so it's making such a scene that people go tell esther they're like hey mordecai is not acting like a sane person and so she sends a message and says what is going on and he sends her back a message with the king's decree because he wants her to see it in black and white that they're going to be wiped out. And so he says, you have to help us. And she sends back a message that says, I'd love to help, but I can't go in the king's presence without dying. And he hasn't called me in in 30 days. So come up with a different solution. And he sends her back a message that says, look, he has faith. He says, look, God is going to raise something for us, and if you're not a part of it, you and your people will not, your your family will not be included in the salvation. So he says, you have to go to the king. And so she tries to get out of it, and basically he says, you can't. God may have put you here just for this reason. So she sends back and says, um, okay, nobody eat or drink. We're going to all fast for three days, and then I'm going to go to the king. And so that's where we are in chapter 5. We pick up, and uh, she says in 16, gather all the Jews to be found in verse four, or chapter 4, verse 16. Gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women, so as queen, she has these, all of these attendants that take care of, help take care of her. I and my young women will also go fast as you do. Then go to the king, though it, then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So this is the scene where we pick it up. She's just finished the fast. They finished fasting with her, and she's going to go into the king. And she says, it's against the law. If the king did not call you in, you were dead. If, if he, and he, he only had one way to like save your life, and that was to show you favor by extending the golden scepter. So Esther was courageous, but I hope you see and I want you to see as we examine her life that it did not come to her naturally. And I would argue it doesn't come to any of us naturally. It's only through the work of the Holy Spirit and by God's presence in our life that we can have courage. And so 
God is going to ultimately use Esther to deliver the Jewish people, but courage did not come naturally to her through this process. So um, again, we need to remember uh, this is literally a life or death scenario. Um, Karen Jobes, who wrote a commentary on Esther, she says this. She said, um, two base reliefs, and base reliefs are like carvings or engravings. So they found this, uh, you know, as they were excavating, they found this on a, on a wall. Um, two base reliefs have been excavated from the Parasopolis showing a Persian king seated on his throne with a long scepter in his right hand. Does this sound familiar? An attendant standing behind the throne is a Median soldier holding a large axe. The threat of death and the hope of life are equally present as Esther summons the courage to approach the king. So remember, it's against the law, and she doesn't have any history or hope of mercy to draw on with this king. Queen Vashti was removed. That's the only reason Queen Esther is Queen Esther, is Vashti denies the king's one request, and he's so upset with her that he issues this decree that she's no longer queen. And so he views what she did as this kind of brazen act, and he's not going to stand for it. Again, this is a culture where they don't view women as uh, equal to men. They're viewed as inferior, and it's very misogynistic. And so Esther, by going into the king unsolicited, that could be viewed as a very brazen act. And she doesn't have any uh, history in how he treated the previous queen that he might show her mercy. And not only does she not have mercy to draw on, uh, a history of mercy to draw on there, the king just issued a decree to commit genocide against a whole people group. That's not a merciful act. And so she's going in really with no hope except for God to save her that this is part of his plan. And so she finally agrees after much persuasion with Mordecai that she's going to go in and, I mean, I imagine her, I've, I've uh, you know, had to do some things in my life that were stressful. Uh, I've had to make, you know, presentations I was nervous about and uh, felt anxious about and got sweaty. But I never worried that if I did a bad job, it was over for me, that my life was done. So, you know, I imagine her walking into the throne room nervous, maybe trembling, probably perspiring a lot, maybe even imagining, like, is, is it going to come from the left or the right? How's it, how am I going to die? So she walks in and uh, picking it up in verse 2, and when he saw the queen, he, when he saw Queen Esther, by the way, this is the first time in the whole book she's called Queen Esther. Before that, she's been referred to as the new queen, or she's been called Esther, but this is the first time they're, the two are together, and she's called Queen Esther. So, and when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Queen Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? So he's addressing her in her, uh, in her royal title. What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even up to half of my kingdom. So she finally does it. She walks in. Her life is spared. I'm sure she was so overwhelmed with, you know, just that instant relief. If you've ever been in that scenario where you don't know how something's going to go and you're worried it's going to go against you and then you find out it's going for you, there's this kind of instant wave of relief that washes over you and your shoulders drop a little bit and you feel 
more relaxed and thankful. So she has this, and this is it. This is her chance to spill the beans about Haman's plan and shave the Jewish people. So what does she do? She punts. She totally doesn't make good. She says in verse 4, And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast I have prepared for the king. She risked her life to come in and ask him to come to a nice dinner. I'm sure the king is thinking, this doesn't make any sense. What is going on? And we see later, if you go down to verse 5, um, then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may go do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? So he realizes people don't come in and risk their life to come ask me to eat at a nice dinner. What is really going on? So he says, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even up to half my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. So in the first case, she walks in. Her life is saved. She doesn't take the opportunity to shave the Jewish people. But we need to remember before we're too hard on on Esther, the culture that she's in. So the Persians had this rule that once they made a law, you couldn't undo it. So in her mind, the Jewish people have been issued to be genocide. They've been issued to be killed on the 13th, month of the, or 13th day of the 12th month of Adar. And that law, according to custom, can't be undone. So it's a difficult thing that she's got to ask the king to do. She's got to ask the king to do something that's supposedly undoable. And as we read on, you'll see when God provides a solution, the law isn't actually undone. There's a law made that the Jewish people can defend themselves and kill anyone who tries to kill them. So, But Esther doesn't know exactly how it's going to go. She just knows there's this law that her and her people literally can't live with, but she also has this competing reality that laws can't be unmade. So what is the real solution at this point? But she goes to the feast. She has the king's ear. The king is now set a second time. Ask me whatever you want, and I'm going to give it to you, even up to half my kingdom. So now we're thinking, this is it. She's going to out Haman. She's going to tell of his plan, and she's going to save the Jewish people. And what does she do? She does it again. She punts again. What is going on? Lead. She says, um, verse 7, Then Esther said, My wish and my request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my request, to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So she had a chance to drop the bomb and take care of it, but she invites him to another nice dinner. And as I was thinking through this, I was thinking, this is insane. Why is she not taking care of things quickly? But again, I think courage only comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's something we see that's not natural. And she also has this competing complication of Haman. So yes, she's the queen. And yes, she's been granted favor with the king. But she hadn't seen the king for a month. Haman is with the king every single day, basically. Haman is the king's most trusted advisor. Haman is the one that got the king to agree to kill an entire people group. It doesn't even say that he asks any questions really about it. Just he listens to Haman's Haman's half-truth presentation 
and gives him his ring and says, go ahead and make this decree to just wipe these people out. So Haman has, has the ear of the king. He's a trusted advisor of the king. He's a man. We need to remember that, unfortunately, in King Ahasuerus' eyes, men and women were not viewed as equal. So it's definitely not a lock that Queen Esther brings this up and the king sides with her, okay? So she has this further complication going on. Now, as we look over in chapter 7, which we'll get to in a couple weeks, we'll eventually see that she will make good on her request. And the way she does it is very, um, very diplomatic, and it's genius, really. She doesn't even go in and say, this is what I want. She just explains the plight of the situation, and then kind of through the Lord stirring up the king's wrath, then we get to a solution on how the Jewish people can save themselves from being wiped out. So, um, but I want you to see, and as I was reading through this, I was really encouraged that real life is not like a Chuck Norris or a Stallone or a Schwarzenegger or a Fast and Furious movie where everybody just has this inherent courage and they're never afraid of anything. Esther was a real person and she had real fears about losing her life and about how things were going to go with her. I'm a real person. I have a lot of real fears and we don't have any hope of overcoming those fears or having any courage in this life apart from the working of the Holy Spirit and from the hand of God moving in our lives. And this is what Jesus encourages us with when he's talking to his followers in Matthew 10, verses 17 through 19. He tells them, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. He's saying, things are not going to always go well for you, believer, follower of Christ. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. So not because you've committed injustice, but because you're a follower of me. To bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious about um, how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the power, but the spirit of the Father speaking through you. And we have power from on high, but we cannot rely on ourselves. We can't muster up the courage. It won't be there. We have to rely on the Holy Spirit. So that's Esther. And it's kind of all downhill from here. Uh, we're going to go to King Ahasuerus, and then we're going to go to Haman. And uh, hopefully both of their lives are a warning to us. So King Ahasuerus, the things that really hit me as I was, was studying this is that he is foolish, he is selfish, and he is narcissistic. And this is a bad combination, especially if you have a lot of power. So um, he's foolish in his offer. Esther walks in, uninvited, unannounced, he spares her life. Before she even says anything else, he grants, he says, I'll grant you whatever request you want up to half my kingdom. This is not a good idea. And the reason I know this is not a good idea is uh, because we have two examples in the New Testament that show us where these same situations happen and one turns out really bad with King Herod and one turns out good because Jesus doesn't fall into this trap. Uh, and the other reason I know this is bad is because I've experienced it in my own life when my kids sometimes come and say they want me to grant a request, but they're not going to tell me what it is. Um, I have not written any parenting books, but that is always a bad idea uh, if you're a parent. So no dice to any kids out there who want requests granted before we know what it is. So um, in the New Testament, in Mark 6, uh, verses 14 through 29, we get a story of Herod. Now, Herod was a, was a really powerful ruler in the Roman Empire. 
Um, and so he was also a man who was not righteous. And John the Baptist um, had some kind of connection with Herod. We don't know exactly what, but he had spoken out against Herod and it had gotten back to Herod. And so what Herod had done is Herod had decided that he liked his brother's wife and he wanted his brother's wife to be his wife. And so he went and he made it happen. And again, the uh, idea of justice and the system of justice in those times favored those who were in power. It's not the same as what we're used to. There was no Bill of Rights in the Roman Empire, no Bill of Rights in King Ahasuerus' Persian Empire. So King Herod went and he just took Herodias. She must have wanted to be his wife because we see later uh, John the Baptist speaks out against this whole thing and not only is Herod upset, but Herodias gets upset. So he goes, he steals his sister-in-law, makes her his wife. Well, John the Baptist speaks out against this and he says, hey, what you did, this is wrong. This is sinful, it's not righteous. And that was a big risk in that day and time because you weren't killed necessarily for what you did. You were more often killed by those in authority by who you disagreed with. So disagreeing with Herod was a big risk. So Herod doesn't like what John the Baptist is saying about him. So he does what any mature adult would do. He put him in prison. So uh, that, that was a joke. So, uh, so he puts him in prison. And then Herod is having this big party. Uh, wine's been flowing freely. And um, Herodias' daughter, so his now stepdaughter, comes out and dances for everyone. Okay, this should sound familiar. This is what King Ahasuerus wanted Queen Vashti to do, to do for him. She comes out and she dances for everyone. And he's so impressed with her dance. Uh, let's pick it up in verse, 30, or verse 22. This is what happens. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her. So not only did he say this in front of everybody, he wants everybody to know how uh, big a man he is. He makes a vow. Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. Does that sound familiar? And she went out, the, the daughter, Herodias' daughter, and said to her mother, Herodias, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste, and she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word, meaning he did not want to um, deal a blow to his fragile ego. He did not want to break his word to her, and he immediately, and immediately the king sent an executioner with order to bring John's head. So Herod grants this request without even knowing what it is. And what does it end up with? It ends up that he must kill a righteous man. He's made a bad decision a bad situation, much, much worse. And so his own pride prevents him from rebuking and saying this was a bad idea. He carries through, he follows through. And um, it says he was exceedingly sorry, which I found interesting because he didn't like John. He had put John in prison for what John had said about him. But I think deep down he knew John was right. He knew John was speaking the truth, even though he didn't like it. Otherwise, why would he be sorry to kill an enemy that he had already put in prison? But something was preventing him. The fear of how the people would react is what the Bible says. It was preventing him from killing John 
but he was still sorry to do it. So the second story we get is also in Mark. So in Mark 10, James and John come to Jesus with a request, and they want Jesus to agree to grant the request before Jesus hears what it is. Now, listen to how Jesus deals with this much differently. So we pick it up in uh, chapter, 30, uh, chapter 10, verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, so they're two brothers, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Okay? Daddy, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. I always say no. And he said to them, Well, what do you want me to do for you? He doesn't agree to anything. He just says, Let's hear it. Which, if John and James had been thinking and had been paying attention to what Jesus had said, they would have known he already knows what they're going to ask for, but he wants to hear him say it anyway so he can use it as a teaching moment. And so he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. So they're still thinking, we want to be somebody big in this kingdom that's coming. And so Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. He goes down a little bit more and he says, to sit at my right or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now, the rest of the disciples get really upset because they find out that James and John are trying to one-up them and get a better position in Jesus' kingdom. And so what does Jesus do? He uses it as a teaching moment and he talks about how those in authority that they're used to saying, they lord it over and they want to make sure that they know you're in charge and they want to take advantage of you. But he talks about how he's going to flip this whole paradigm upside down. And if you want to be a leader in the kingdom of heaven, you have to be a servant. And he's going to ultimately be the ultimate servant by taking all of our sin and agreeing to have his life killed and traded for ours. And so he flips this whole paradigm upside down. And it's completely different than what we see in King Herod and King Ahasuerus. And it highlights their foolishness. But not only was King Ahasuerus foolish, he was also selfish and narcissistic. Now, his, um, his, what he says to Queen Vashti, I mean, Queen Esther, you may be tempted to think was very generous. He says, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even up to half my kingdom. Now, his kingdom was pretty vast. It was, it was a lot of, uh, he had a lot of wealth and he had a lot of land and he had a lot of people that were his subjects. So giving her half the kingdom may seem like an immense amount of generosity. But what he wanted to demonstrate was, I want to show that I'm generous without actually having to be generous. He wanted to give her whatever he had to give all the way up until the point it really cost him something. Even if he gave her half the kingdom, he's still in control. He's still the king. He still has half of it. Plus, women were looked upon as inferior to men in this time. All the advisors, all the rulers, all the authorities are going to be supportive to him. Even if he gave her half the kingdom, his life really doesn't change at all. Nothing is different for him. He hasn't given her anything. So he wants to appear generous, but really he's selfish. He is about his kingdom and his glory, and it's going to end up empty. It's all, all gods that are not the one true God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all end up as rotten, empty gods. And so don't be tempted to think that even though he was against God's people, he was willing to be generous in this one act. He wanted to appear like the big man on campus, but he didn't really want to give anything that cost him anything. Again, this is a complete um, uh, 180 from where Jesus was, where he laid down everything 
and took up the humblest position so that he could save his people. All right, I want to move on to Haman um, because I think Haman's, and I want to spend the the majority of the time uh, on Haman's life because I think he's the biggest warning for us. Because Haman was prideful, and his pride blinded and destroyed his soul and his life. And pride will blind and destroy us. So we know that Haman was prideful. He gives us a giant window into his heart in verses 9 through 14. So picking it up in verse 9, again, Esther just said, "Um, come to the banquet tomorrow, and this time I'll really ask what I want. So Haman went out that day, and he was joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he, meaning Mordecai, neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife. And Haman, this is we're going to get, it is like an x-ray into his heart. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast that she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. This is one of the, the, the most transparent pictures you'll ever get into somebody's life at this point. So Haman is putting his hope in his kingdom and in himself. And he's going to tell you what everything in his kingdom entails. And he starts with his riches. Now, one thing that's important to keep in mind about this point in time in the world is from the beginning of creation until the Industrial Revolution about 250 years ago, Um, the amount of wealth in the world was relatively flat. There was not uh, major increases in efficiency or technology to create wealth. And so really, the the two main ways to become rich prior to the last 250 years was to exploit people through things like slavery and so to use their productivity for your gain and not share it with them or it was to steal people's possessions, which is often why kings went to war. And we've already seen Haman is not above doing that. His whole decree was to kill the Jewish people and plunder their possessions. So when we see that Haman is rich, we should remember he's not rich because he invented Google. He's rich most likely because he exploited and took advantage of other people or even stole their possessions. So he wants to call all of his friends together and basically go down his net worth statement and talk about, I have this and I have that, and this is better than yours, and this is more expensive than yours, and just, this is, this is why I am great. All of my hope is in these things. Then he recounts his sons. Now, if you read on later in Esther, you'll see he had 10 sons. Now, we don't know if he had any daughters, but even if he had, he wouldn't have mentioned them because, again, He's misogynistic. He views men as more valuable than women, and he thinks they're the only ones that have any value. So he recounts all of his sons to presumably the people that are closest to him, his friends, and his wife, who certainly knew how many sons they had and what their names were. And so, But he still feels the need to recount how important 
and how amazing his family is and kind of this machismo of like my seed produced these 10 sons. And so he goes on and then he appeals to his position and he says, I've risen higher than any of my peers. So in King Ahasuerus' corporate ladder, I am at the top. I have been advanced faster and higher than anyone else. And I would imagine he may have even seen himself in, you know, when he let his mind drift and he daydreamed, he may have seen himself as more powerful than King Ahasuerus because he was the king's most trusted advisor. I mean, he had just convinced the king to issue a decree to wipe out a whole people group. And so he might have even seen the king as his puppets to as his puppet to basically do as he as he wanted the king to do. So he's elevating himself to try to prove his value. And then it gets just ridiculous. He starts talking about this special feast that he got to go to. I mean, this is like kindergarten level on the playground, like my dad's truck is better than your dad's truck kind of talk. I mean, he's, he's appealing to, he just got to go to this special dinner and tomorrow he gets to go to another special dinner. So this guy is putting all of his hope in his possessions, in his family name, in his position, and it's going to end up leaving him utterly and completely empty groping around for something that really matters. And not only did his pride leave him feeling empty, but it ultimately led to him being blind to who Esther was, and that's going to literally dig his own grave. The, um, so his pride is at an all-time high, and we see where it's destroyed because Mordecai says, all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, this is not to be known as just like a descriptive comment. This is a racist comment. The Jew sitting at the king's gate. He hates Jewish people. He wants to kill them all, literally. That's not a hyperbole. He's issued a decree to have it done. And so he says, uh, all this stuff means nothing to me. It's this one person has stolen all of my happiness. And has, again, if you think about this, it's ridiculous. It's like a, it's like a toddler throwing a fit, like sitting on the floor, you know, kicking his feet and screaming. This one person has stolen all of my joy, all of my happiness. My life is bad because of him. And so um, we know that they hated each other. Uh, well, we know that Haman hated Mordecai because Mordecai refused to bow down and pay homage to Haman. And it says in the text, uh, we don't know the interaction between Mordecai and Haman. So we don't know if he just, Mordecai's just there doing his job. Haman walks by, expects everybody he walks by to bow down. Mordecai doesn't do it, and he becomes enraged. We don't know if they exchange words, and there's a heated, you know, argument. We don't know if they almost, you know, get into a fight. We, we don't know. We just know that Haman sees Mordecai. He doesn't feel like he gets his due from him, and he's angry. So much so that he wanted Mordecai to tremble before him. And I don't know. Um, I'm not a, a, a psychotherapist, but if your desire is for people to tremble before you, you're not in an emotionally healthy state, okay? So if that's the only way you feel satisfied is if people's posture and how they act around you is so filled with fear that you are feed off that power, um, you have some issues. And so Haman has some definite issues with his pride, and they're going to blind him in a couple ways that end up being fatal. The first way that he's blind is he is blind to who Queen Esther is. So he's very familiar with who Mordecai is. He hates Mordecai. And if you read Esther all throughout the book, Esther and Mordecai are tethered together. 
from the very beginning, it talks about her being orphaned, him being a father figure to her. When she gets chosen by the king to go into this contest to potentially be the next queen, Esther, I mean, uh, Mordecai is the one who tells her to hide being Jewish. And then it says in chapter two, he went to her every day while she was basically in this period of potentially going to become queen to find out how things were going. So he is going to talk to Esther every single day. And they're so connected that Esther is the one who ends up telling the king that there's a couple guys that want to kill him. Mordecai is the one who finds out the plot. He tells Esther. Esther tells the king. And this gets uh, put in the king's records forever. We'll see in chapter 6 that um, the king realizes Mordecai is the one who saved his life by telling Esther. And then when Mordecai is walking around screaming in the city and crying, what do the people do? It says they go find Esther and they're like, hey, Mordecai is doing this. Can you do something about this? So all of these things are swirling around Haman. And a lot of other people in the kingdom have picked up on the fact that there's some connection between Mordecai and Esther. But Haman is absolutely blind to it. He doesn't think to begin to question at all who Esther is, or why Esther and Mordecai may be so tightly connected. And this oversight on his part, because of his pride, is literally going to dig his own grave. The other way he's blind is by the advisors that he chooses and the advice that they give to him. So it says in uh, verse 10, Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. So he's He needs some advice. He's in a bad spot, and he needs some help. He needs them to feed his ego, first of all, and then he needs them to give him some advice on what to do because Mordecai is ruining his life, is what he thinks. So we know that Haman had narcissistic tendencies. Uh, He's willing to kill a whole people group because of one man's accents to him. Um, He becomes enraged because this man won't tremble or show fear before him. And... Um, we know he's full of pride because he's just recounted all the reasons why he's a great person. And so this group of friends that is around him, they know who Haman is. They know that he's a prideful person. They know that he's he's uh, prone to anger and rage. And so they may have been scared to tell Haman anything other than what Haman wanted to hear. We don't hear any record of them asking, hey, have you searched your heart and seen if, you have, if you're complicit in any of this? We don't see them asking any uh, tough accountability questions. Um, and I was reminded of the proverb uh, 26 and 27. There's, there are other proverbs that could fit in this situation. Um, but the advice they give him is they say, uh, they don't say anything about, hey, maybe you're wrong here, or maybe you should do something reasonable. They go straight to death. This is their first recommendation. Okay, we're not brainstorming for days trying to come up with something. They go straight to death. You should build a gallows. And so um, uh, what Proverbs 26 through 27 says is, whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. A lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. We're going to see these perfectly in Esther. Haman is going to build a gallows, that he is going to hang on. He's going to dig a pit that he will fall into. He's going to dig a gallows that he'll fall into. And ultimately, these people, they 
either do not care about Haman, they're afraid of Haman, they do not speak the truth to him. They flatter him and they lie to him and it's going to lead to his ruin. So in that day and time, well, even today, if you were to build a 75-foot wooden structure, so it says if you go on, so he says, verse 13, uh, as long as I see Mordecai sitting at the gate, all this means nothing to me. Then verse 14, then his wife's arrest and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning, so 50, a cubit is about a foot and a half, so it's a 75-foot high wooden structure where you would hang somebody. This is a very public thing. You can't build something 75 feet high and not expect people to take notice, especially in that day and time. There were not skyscrapers like we have today. So it's not like, you know, there, you would go into a city where there are a bunch of tall structures. But even if we were to put something in our yard 75 feet high, people would take notice of it and wonder what's going on. So this is their solution. Let a gallows 70, 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman. It flattered him. And he had the gallows made. So their advice to Haman is to kill this guy in a very gruesome public way. And Haman also doesn't question the idea, but thinks it's great and it sounds fantastic. And he orders it right up. And so... um, his friends are flattering him, but they don't really love him. There are other Proverbs that talk about uh, the, uh, the wounds of a friend can be trusted. These people don't really have his best interest at heart, and he's blind because he surrounded himself with people who don't really love him or want to speak the truth to him. They just want to tell him what he wants to hear. And I think Haman's life is a big warning to us, um, not just because pride destroys us and it blinds us, But I think sometimes we can be tempted um, to give a pass to pride. There are many in our our culture and other cultures who who revere those who are prideful. They see it as a source of strength. They see it as something to be praised, um, something to be emulated. But God in his word all throughout the Bible condemns pride. And it's ultimately pride that led to why we even have sin in the first place. Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. They thought that they could put themselves in God's place and that would be better. And that pride is ultimately what opened us up to the curse of sin coming into the world. And I remember I went a while back to hear a guy who is an expert in apologetics talk about um, why the Christian faith makes sense and how it's coherent and how it's reliable. And um, he was a great speaker and he had a lot of really good things to say But the thing I remember most about that evening was he was so arrogant. And he even said something at one point. This is not a direct quote. I didn't record it. But he said something to the effect of, um, you know, I know I'm arrogant, but that's just who I am. And that really bothered me. And I haven't been able to let it go because um, we, we often can times be blind to pride and want to give it a pass because we see, you know, um, exceptional gifting or we see exceptional results. And, um, God does not need, just like he doesn't need us, he doesn't need our talents or ability. He's the one who's sovereignly working behind the scenes to make his plan happen. And so um, pride is a real struggle. It's a struggle for me. Um, and and I, uh, you know, it's a struggle for me in getting ready for this message. And, and when I'm getting ready for sermons sometimes, I want the praise of you more than I want to glorify God. 
And those are things that we can't give a pass to. We have to go to the cross and we have to confess them. And we have to lay them down. And we have to remember that our identity is secure in Jesus. And we don't have to be prideful or build our own kingdoms. And so um, we all have to confess our sins so that we can be washed clean and not, um, not ignore pride. I don't know all the details and I certainly was not behind any of the closed doors uh, but there have been a lot of denominational leaders over the last five or ten years that have had to step down from their positions. Very prominent people, whether it's Acts 29, Sovereign Grace, um, there's a handful of them that have all happened in the last ten years. And it seemed that pride played a large part in a lot of those uh, events that led to, to that happening. Um, so I just want to close with us being encouraged that we can only find courage and hope in the Lord, um, that it can seem like things are spinning out of control and it can seem like God is not on the scene. Um, we're heading into an election year, and I've, I've heard, I've lived through enough election cycles that there are always people anxious about, regardless of if you're on, you know, Democrat, Republican, Socialist, Libertarian, people are always anxious that the other side's going to win and the economy, or the, not the economy, the country's going to go down the drain. And so um, it can be tempting in those moments to put our hope in things that are not God. But Esther is very clear. You have a wicked king. You have a wicked kingdom. You have an unjust culture. And yet God is going to work his perfect plan to save his people. And so um, God will not only save Esther and Mordecai, but he's going to save the whole Jewish nation. And that's what he did for us. He didn't turn his back on us as sinners. He sent his son. He offered him up as the ultimate sacrifice so that we could be sealed and have eternity with him as his children, rejoicing in the satisfaction that only he can provide. So let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this morning. I thank you that even though we don't see the name of God explicitly in the book of Esther, that the working of your handprint is all over it, Lord. And I pray that you will help us in moments. I know I am tempted toward anxiety. I'm tempted toward fear. I'm tempted toward pride. When those moments come, Lord, help us to remember that you're not wringing your hands. You're not worried about the outcome. You're not... um, feeling like things are spinning out of control, but you're working your plan and you will give us what we need, Lord. Just as you tell us in Ephesians 2.10 that you have prepared good works beforehand so that we can walk in them. So I pray as we go to your table now that we'll be encouraged. In your name, amen.